Hello and welcome to Something for the Soul, the leadership podcast with a twist. As founders and CEOs of social enterprises, we've all had something that we've had to dig deep into our soul to get through. It turns out that if we've done the work to overcome that something, then we might have a story to tell that could help someone else. On this podcast, you will hear from leaders across the globe, openly talking about their challenges and sharing how they made it to the other side. I'm your host, Shonju Pal, founder of the education charity Rise, and every month I will invite a new guest to share something for the soul. My guest today is Neha Sahu, the co-founder and chief operating officer at Launch Girls, an international non-profit on a mission to equip adolescent girls with critical 21st century professional skills, entrepreneurial mindsets, and the confidence to successfully transition from school to work. They are a global team of youth and gender experts, creating economic empowerment programming for girls across Southeast Asia and Africa. Their girl boss programs are cost-effective, easy to replicate, locally adapted, and delivered through a global network of trusted girl-serving organizations and government institutions. Operating from 2020, Launch Girls has reached over 10,000 girls in 15 countries through a growing network of 18 partners. Prior to this, Neha co-founded Just for Kicks, a non-profit developing life skills through football for children in low-income schools in India and Cambodia. She scaled the organization before merging it with enabling leadership. She then served as the Director of Global Operations and Development at Enabling Leadership, developing life skills through football, music and Lego for children in low-income schools in Southeast Asia. Neha is a former Teach for India Fellow and an Acumen Fellow. She is a graduate of New York University who is deeply engaged with premier academic institutions, multinationals and governments. Her work to date has positively impacted youth across Asia, Africa, the Middle East and the US. Welcome Neha to Something for the Soul. I am so delighted to have you on the podcast today. I'm so happy to be here, Sanju, and I can't believe that I'm ending my week on such a high note. You have done so much, both as an entrepreneur and intrapreneur. Let's dive straight in to where I guess you started your journey of innovating in the social sector with co-founding Just for Kicks whilst doing the Teach for India Fellowship. How did the idea come about and how did you make it happen? It was 2010 and Teach for India was actually quite a radical decision, which happened suddenly. It wasn't planned. I was in New York at that time, completed my undergraduation degree. My work revolved around my psychological research in New York. And I was already working with students and teachers in New York public schools and Chicago public schools at that point. Heard about Teach for India while I was simultaneously interviewing for management consulting and the likes, a lot of corporate jobs. Something just really called out to me about Teach for India. I thought about, hey, why not get these kids to New York and do everything that I would like to do and apply from my learnings to my research for teaching mental health and self-awareness for kids, but not as a teacher. Didn't seem to be a way out. Got into Teach for India, showed up in the classroom, and this was a group of 50 plus teeny tiny toddlers 
who were barely able to sit on their benches. So I think struggle number one was how do we all manage to sit in the classroom together? And I think that was day one to two years of the fellowship. It was difficult. Very quickly in the classroom, I started learning my big lessons. I realized a lot of patterns in what was happening in the classroom environment, but also in the school environment, the government ecosystem around me. I was lucky enough, I say today, to be in this dilapidated school building in the middle of Mumbai in a slum area, which had three different mediums of instructions. And these three were happening at the same time in the school. So one, it was really noisy. There was a courtroom below us and they kept yelling at us to make sure the noise levels were down. And finally, everyone seemed to be having internal struggles and quarrels within the government school system. All of this together and my teaching skills were being really tested because children were literally not identifying alphabets or numbers. And let me remind you, this was the second year of Teach for India. So just a fresh second cohort. None of the training seemed to make sense in this classroom. And we luckily had a field in our school. There was a playground. We were one of the privileged schools to have an attached playground. So my co-teacher and I, at that point in time, just decided to take them off to the playground. And what started as just a lot of free play converted into a little bit of structured games. We played cricket, we played football, we played just simple things like cat and cook. And tiny, tiny wonders started accumulating. Things like children were listening, children were interested in coming to school, children weren't bashing up each other or trying to abuse peers or teachers. And that's when it all clicked for me. A lot of my life has been inspired through sport, through school, through college, university. And football was that one sport that I didn't do very well at. I had other racket sports that I was better at. But all my life lessons came through sport. So seeing these kids already coming into school, getting excited to be there and be on the playground, got me to think about why not use a team sport as a medium to instruct them and just end up teaching everything that I were to teach in a classroom in this open free playground. Just for Kicks for Me started in Mumbai on this very field because these kids, I tell you, the boys and the girls were some of the most talented seven, eight, nine and 10 year olds I had seen in the city after having done a lot of sporting activities. It was not only this moment of, wow, why can't we use sport to actually teach and instruct them? But why can't we use sport beyond academics as well for all the beautiful life skills that I was just seeing unfolding in front of me, be it just collaborating with each other, be it their grit and perseverance or their interest to come to school, just problem solving on the pitch while we were playing together. That's how uh, Just for Kicks came about for me in Mumbai. I met Vikas and a few other co-founders at that point in time. They were in the city of Pune. We got together and got brewing on developing curriculum and growing what was our brainchild at that point, Just for Kicks. Neha, it's such a wonderful story. You were a teacher, you had an idea, there was a playground next to you, and from that something flourished across India and Cambodia. I heard about a story, it was actually you doing a talk at a TEDx. By the way, you're a formidable speaker. 
there are a lot of YouTube videos of you, which I feel like listeners need to go and check out because it is really inspiring to hear you talk. But the thing that really got me about this story was that trip that you took with some of your students to London. And I think what would be really helpful for our listeners is also if you could help paint the picture of what is life like for these students that you're working with and Just for Kicks, and therefore how big a deal was taking a trip to London. But what I loved about what you were talking about was this notion of these young people from completely different socioeconomic backgrounds coming together, reinventing the rules for themselves in how they connect. Even if, for example, I think the examples you used were they didn't know what a shower was and they came to Crystal Palace and they were like, oh, this is how you bathe. Or what's a passport versus, oh, I'm a global traveler at the age of 11 already from a child in London. So I think it would be really interesting from your perspective of that trip and also through the eyes of the students as well. I like that you pick on this one, Sean Jude's one of my favorite learning moments and just life moments that I truly cherish. Just for Kicks had grown to a level that we were in multiple cities across India. What we did as part of the programming beyond just doing football sessions, life skills oriented sessions for these kids was have a league. So we used to have a football Just for Kicks league in each of our cities. And all the finalists of the different cities and towns would come together for a grand finale, the Super League. Something that kept playing on both mine and my co-founder's mind was the power of sport to just be such a leveler across girls and boys, gender, across different socioeconomic strata in society. We knew a lot of other kids from elite schools playing football. So we conceptualized something called the School Football League. And we thought, why not make a big hurrah and let our kids who are coming from very, very low income backgrounds. These kids in Mumbai, where I was teaching, there are families of eight to 10 living in a very tiny room and all sharing a community toilet with maybe 15 to 20 people sharing that toilet. They have no space to themselves. So life was pretty much outdoors on the streets most of the time. And school was that one safe place where they would come uh, have enough space to run around, be around, as well as get free meals. So, so this is the children we are talking about. When they came to play football, they did not have shoes. Some of them had slippers, but it was a very casual matter of fact if they came barefoot also. So it was upon us at Just for Kicks to make sure they had their football kits, including their jersey, their footwear, studs, etc. Coming back to this football league, we thought about having our Just for Kicks kids play alongside the kids from some of the most elite schools and also middle-income schools, some places like where I grew up. This came together. Now, let me just paint a picture of these kids who are coming in. There were kids who were coming in Mercedes-Benz and Audis. They didn't have just one pair of shoes, but multiple pair of fancy branded shoes. They had some help who would come with them, hold their Gatorade and refreshing water and snack while they were on the pitch. I typically had a kid saying, hey, Didi, Didi is like an elder sister word. What is that they're having? Can I get that? And at this league, we would put up stalls, right? To have footfalls, make it a gala event and make everyone feel the joy of the sport and just have a great time. So there would be all these brownie stalls, cake stalls. And it was always a thinking point about, wow, at this event, you're generating revenue for vendors, but our kids that were coming through just for cakes 
didn't even know what these things were. So it was always that balance. And then London happened. We were in talks with Crystal Palace and their academy. And they were super kind to invite us for a 10-day trip for the winners of this grand finale school football championship. We had 10 kids chosen. Vikas and I at that point were super excited, stoked about it, posting all over social media. And then came the real work. I had to begin by taking charge of the logistics. I was chosen to be the chaperone, come coach, come adult, just accompanying them for the partnership at Crystal Palace. What happened after that, Shonju, the next few months were so eye-opening because someone coming from a middle-income background in India, I had never faced this. I'm thinking, okay, I need to sign up some deals for flight tickets for these kids. But hello, we don't have passports here. And not only that, we don't have identity cards in place also. So the work to just get to the airport with identification, there were kids who were orphans and did not have paperwork for their family backgrounds. So making the passports, getting them at least to the flight in the first place, that was one heck of an experience. And of course, the other kids at this time had flown to multiple countries, had passports with different stamps. So the difference and the contrast was stark from the word go. I was super nervous because at the last minute, Shanju, what happened is I was meant to have one more adult accompany me from our team and his visa did not come through. So all of a sudden it was me and we had eight kids coming with us finally and the videographer who was coming to shoot this event. And I was stressed because I hadn't done an international trip with a group of young children all under the age of 16 from extremely different life experiences and backgrounds. So I was very nervous as an adult who had already founded an organization. I'm thinking about all the dynamics and complication of this group that I'm taking with me. As adults, we tend to think so much about this. It was all in my head. We reached the airport. We reached the flight. I probably had one of the most relaxed flights of my life. I could even sip on some wine during this flight because these kids, I just paired them up together. And there was somebody from high income school, somebody from Just for Cakes, all flying for the first time, having a gala time, ordering snacks and food, sitting in this Qatar Airways flight. We reached London. There we were hosted by Crystal Palace at a dormitory. And it was interesting. We had done a lot of pre-work to think about who would be rooming with whom. And I was thinking about everything from the toilet paper experience, that level of nitty-gritty, to the showering experience, to the food, right? The differences in food. That actually came to light for the first time when we arrive in our rooms, in our dorms. And while some of the kids are remarking about, oh, this is such a, not a very impressive setup to live in, our kids from Jatsu Cakes were so excited and so ecstatic that they were in a big room with just another human being because they were coming from households where they were stuffed together and they were just excited about that. And then one thing after the other, right? Food. So differences in where is my Indian equivalent of my breakfast? Why am I getting just my eggs and bread? And what is this fancy milk? What are these fancy drinks? How do I sleep alone? I'm not used to sleeping alone to how do I shower, to how do I wash myself because things are so different in a different country. I think I realized very early on that the only way to go through this experience was to 
make sure that they were buddies who could help each other that worked beautifully so i think all my inhibitions and let's say our team's inhibitions about all these complications and our layers of different socio economic strata children mingling together how would that happen it all just fell apart because my learning was simply that you put a bunch of kids together no matter where they come from and they had a united purpose and vision here they just wanted to play and have a great time and learn together and they mingled seamlessly so we came out of this trip with some of the best friendships between boys and girls and completely different backgrounds and they were sharing their food they were teaching each other just basics of life i was like what a beautiful way to unleash this for children and experience life as an adult all of this is so wonderful to hear and i think it's bringing together the theme of then the next stage of just for kicks which is every child is a leader has leadership capability and what you've described is being thrown into an unknown environment and thriving is developing all of the aspects of a leader i guess i just wanted to touch on that strategic change that you went through when i met you in varna bulgaria at the teach for all social entrepreneurs gathering in 2019 it was about a year after you had merged with enabling leadership can you describe to us the journey that you went through on that transition and also what was the driver behind the change in terms of the impact we had grown to close to 10000 children at just for cakes we had made our impression in urban india and something that both my co-founder and i were still eager to do was enter rural india but we didn't know how to go about that simultaneously we were thinking about how do we make this intervention more systemic and embed it for governments across the country and take it to more countries within southeast asia to begin with the programmatic learning that we had had through experience like this crystal palace trip to london was this whole angle of student leadership and youth leadership we had upgraded a lot of our programmatic and curriculum work on how do you focus on every child being a leader and not as a classroom leader or a committee leader but just actually untapping that beautiful potential that every child and every young person has within them and we had enough frameworks curriculum work done around this but something that we were being questioned about is why football and why only sport answering all of these questions about how do we scale how do we make this more systemic and how do we open up more avenues that are extracurricular to allow children and young adults to grow and learn from and hone their leadership skills got us to meeting uh, two wonderful other nonprofits one of them was called enabling leadership the other one was called music busty they had the lego and the music pieces for life skills respectively so we spent a good one year of brainstorming strategizing sitting at round tables and hours on end just coming up with what could this look like if we build this vision together and continue to grow and come 2018 we decided to rebrand as enabling leadership with football program a music program and a lego program and from there on that was a brand new journey i think a lot of big things about this shanju one is just that 
this had never been done before at that point in time, at least in India. So when you're talking about legal paperwork, nobody knew what we were talking about. And while we are looking for help and guidance, people are trying to figure out exactly what we are doing. So that was one whole ball game to deal with. Another ball game was the fact that at Just for Kicks, we were a team of around 60-ish. And now all of a sudden, with three entities merged into one organization, we're talking about 200 plus. This was obviously after one year of planning, but it's still a big number for a team. And then I was taking charge of all of our operations. So sure, football was my cup of tea. I knew how to go about everything with football and programming. But now there was music, which was amazing because I love music, but I hadn't ever programmed formally for music. It was just fashion and bathroom singing till now, right? And then there was Lego. Again, I had done a little bit of Lego programming, but... The idea of working with an entire force, and I call it a really powerful force at enabling leadership of 200 odd across three different programs was definitely, I would say it was daunting in a way, but I was super energized by just the level of energy the team showed, the excitement about this. What I did not see coming was the change management piece of it, because in a very optimistic style and I would say I was realistically optimistic I was ready to go for it with this belief that nothing's going to be impossible there will be enough hurdles we'll overcome it I probably underestimated the effort that it takes to manage the change across programs across teams and getting different groups of people together who do have the same shared vision but were functioning very differently. So I think three years of my time went to culture building in a new organization, but really scaled up organization. And while we had goals that in these three years, we'd be touching double and triple numbers of students, in retrospect, I'm glad we spent those three years just focusing on building and focusing on the internal team and our programs. So that was enabling leadership. And I went through many role transitions. I started as the director of operations, went on to handle partnerships, and then went on to handle fundraising. So pretty much got my share of every piece of the pie here as well. You then went on to co-found Launch Girls. I mean, you are basically like a serial social entrepreneur, Neha, and I love it. What motivated you to make the move from enabling leadership and focus on building an organization centered on girl empowerment? This is my favorite question. So I think it was 2020, the pandemic had hit all of us with the same intensity. I had not taken a break in my working life since I was 16. And it was just hitting me in 2020, which I'm not proud of, I will admit. At this point in time, I could feel the real burnout in my mind, in my body, and the fact that I'd gone through all this change management that I just spoke about. So I was actually exhausted. As I woke up every morning and thought about my day, like I typically do, and plan my weeks and my months, I kept realizing that I was just not as energized in the setup I operated in then. So this mix of not being as energized and refreshed with a lot of deep thought I realized was because I probably wasn't used to functioning in such a large team, coupled with the fact that I was burnt out, was very real. The additional layer of the pandemic made me almost start thinking of taking a break 
I started consulting with some work advisors, some personal friends and advisors. And what became clear to me was that I think my time was done. I had spent 11 years building Just for Kicks and Enabling Leadership. And I think I had given everything that I had within me to give to this. And I think both the program and Enabling Leadership needed somebody probably different with a different skill set to take it from here. So my part was done. And instead of just continuing to go and beat myself up and thinking that why am I not feeling great about this every day, I just had to gracefully decide to move on and take a break. That's how that transition started off. We got into me deciding to be on a one-year sabbatical to pack my bag and pick a continent to travel across and do all the things that I missed doing because of lack of time at work. Making music, playing different sport, traveling, cooking, eating. But we were in 2021. And so none of those dreams are going to unfold right there. So I spent the first month of my sabbatical literally frustrated about the fact that I couldn't do any of these things that I planned to. And now I'm again just stuck in a room in my apartment in Mumbai. I started with a lot of deep reflection, meditation, happened to go to a Vipassana training experience as well, a 10-day silent meditation. That's when I actually realized that I was so grateful for everything that had happened in this transition. I think my sabbatical, Sanju, didn't even last for 12 months. I ended up doing a lot of what I call non-work, but others probably categorize at work. I picked up a coaching certification in this time. I ended up coaching a lot of people. And it was a lot of things that I liked. I was mentoring a few young girls from Just for Kicks who were graduating out of the program. And just talking to a lot of people, thinking about different aspects of life, mingling with different sectors. And I met this wonderful lady called Avril at that point. I checked out this website called Launch Girls. And it just popped at me, actually, because everything that I read about Launch Girls was everything that I had felt about my journey as an entrepreneur, a woman entrepreneur. It deeply connected with my nine months of reflection about what was still missing and what would I like to spend the rest of my life doing. And that's how Launch Girls happened. I realized in my sabbatical that I was a woman, but I was always a woman in a place and position of power. So people listened to me. Uh, I was always up there in the hierarchical ranks at work. So people listened to me, despite having a lot of teams that were predominantly men, especially in sport. I was also loud. So that kind of helped, I think. I was not a soft-spoken person. But it took so much of overlooking the fact that there wasn't workspace equality in India working in the nonprofit sector, in government rooms with all men and being the only woman. When people heard that, oh, you're running a sports for development organization, good to know, but just passing on to the next conversation without taking you seriously and I had probably just overlooked a lot of that because I was picking my battles at that point in time so I realized that there was a big piece of gender inequity in my life as somebody who came from a fairly well-off background but the bigger realization was that all the projects that I did at Just for Kicks to 
bring about gender equity for girls and boys, put girls at the forefront, let them play, not have them ridiculed by parents about getting dark and not getting married or breaking their bones and hence not making it into marriages. All of this was just ending and getting into the same vicious cycle of marriage after they finished school. So there seemed to be not enough people or organizations or government systems that were working on making sure that these girls were going on from school into college or directly going on from school into some work. And so what you were getting as a result of this was someone like Just for Kicks and other organizations building all this leadership, building all these life skills for these girls, a lot of them doing really well in school and then getting stuck and sucked into the same ecosystem of marriage pressure, getting deprioritized over the boys in their household because of financial constraints, etc. And what I'm actually talking about was a lot of urban India at that point in time. Rural India was a different story, which only after digging, I realized was girls were getting married at 13 and 12 and even in some villages at 11. And I did not know this myself. So a lot of this deep digging made it very clear to me that I wanted to really focus my time on making sure that enough women are becoming financially independent and have a say over their lives because I thought being in charge of the money for yourself and for your family is going to let you call the shots for your life and nobody can say anything to you in response to that. That's how Launch Girls happened and I joined Avril on this journey to start building yet another nonprofit. Something for the Soul is a space for leaders to be open about their most difficult personal and professional experiences with the firm belief that in doing so has the potential to be transformative. So can you tell me about something challenging that you have worked on or that you are continuing to work on that you want to bring to the podcast today? What was the situation? Tell us about it. Okay, the situation was that of career transition. The actual challenge that I was facing with myself was that of getting into this habit of just seeking external validation. And as a result of that, ending up doing a lot of people pleasing in both the workspace as well as in personal spaces. And I'm actually really happy that now at this point in 2024, I can look back and say that it's taken, I think, at least one and a half to two years of hard work to unfold what was at the root of this, diagnose it, and then work on it. I spoke about my entire Just for Kicks to Enabling Leadership to Launch Girls journey. What I kept underestimating was transitions, life transitions. And let me talk a little bit more focused on career transitions here. So I had decided to move on from enabling leadership and take a break. And this was the first real break, long-term, 12 months dedicated to myself in all my working life. So it was big. The fact that the pandemic was around didn't make things easier. But what started happening was that I had this loss of understanding of myself. I didn't know how to introduce myself. I didn't know what do I say when I meet somebody outside. I 
didn't know what my daily purpose was, what my daily activity was, because I was so used to being busy. I just felt this absolute sense of blankness a lot of the times and emptiness. Something was happening and I kept attributing it to the pandemic because everyone was going through something difficult. And I kept saying, this is the pandemic. But my inner voice kept saying that this is more than the pandemic, Neha. It is the pandemic plus something going on. At this point in time, Shonju, I think this is when I've struggled the most. I went into the sabbatical with a series of work and personal life events that were quite rough and very intense and difficult. So if I were to use one word to describe all of them, there was a lot of conflict. And typically, I've been a conflict-solving pro in the workspace and conflict-avoidant in the personal space. What I was coming into my sabbatical with was with all kinds of conflict, where I didn't feel that I had ended up coming out as a winner. But on the contrary, I felt that there was a lot of loss and I had attributed all this to my failures. While I was experiencing all this blankness and emptiness because I didn't have a daily activity and didn't know what my exact purpose on a daily basis was for lack of work, it became very evident to me and I spelled out for the first time to myself in my life that I have attributed so much of my self-worth and my personality and identity to work that I don't even know how to describe myself outside of work. And in doing so, I have failed to actually recognize all the other facets of my personality, which I am equally proud of. But why hasn't this ever occurred to me in my entire life? With a little bit of more deep thinking, I realized that it was only me who was doing this. I was attributing the self-worth to work. It wasn't everyone else. Of course, people did recognize me for work that they believed was good. But they thought about other aspects of me as well. Neha in a social space, Neha in a relationship space, etc. This kind of connected to why I was feeling this entire sense of loss and failure. Because I had spent all this time building organizations and letting go and moving on kind of translated in my mind to losing something, which was not the case at all but I was probably narrating that to myself and you know at this point in time I will bring out the woman card I was going through imposter syndrome I have met a lot of other entrepreneurs who transitioned and gone on to other businesses most of them that I've met have been men these other entrepreneurs were talking about their achievements and how great it was and now it was a break and I found myself thinking about oh, I don't think I'm prepared for the world and there's so much I need to learn and what have I done so far and just really questioning myself and being really hard on myself. So a lot of this started happening. I actually joined Launch Girls, started working with my co-founder already at that point in time. But what carried forward was this entire behavior of not listening to my gut and instincts, which I was amazing at doing till then, especially in the workplace, and just continuously seeking validation for everything, even for things that I was probably better than everyone at, right? I would just wait for some sort of approval or validation, and I was just 
so worried about disturbing or disappointing somebody in the workspace also and i was a leadership member i was a co-founder but i was still behaving like this i had to take a pause and step back and ask myself what's going on something that my personal reflection taught me right away was i had a people pleasing tendency in personal life what i tend to do what i would tend to do rather is be scared of saying no right to social obligations and not know how to say no for fear of disappointing somebody not being there for my friends so despite not wanting to be at an event or not enjoying a kind of experience or not wanting to prioritize a person i would go all out and put myself through all these experiences and activities with these people for fear of disappointing them and i feel like that had translated into my entire being and hence it was just neha being this way but till then till this 2021 22 i hadn't ever experienced myself like this at work so it was something new and it felt crippling i wasn't feeling good about it at all and i knew i had to do something about it luckily for me i've always maintained a very strong support network so i decided to go to two a personal and a professional advisor of mine did some really deep digging with them through multiple sessions a lot of objective concern and care for me and just blunt feedback came through to me and i realized that i have always been a competitive personality and i like winning and i like feeling good about myself but after transitioning into my sabbatical i was left with a sense of failure and doom and my narrative was that i have to get better learn more and i don't know enough so i had been living in this entire environment and this mindset of i'm not winning at life i am probably failing or not doing so well and that's when the switch happened for me sanju i realized that i need to get back to winning on a daily basis on a weekly basis on a monthly basis until i do that for myself things are not going to change so finally i decided to take control of my own life for a change i said not only in the workspace but i'm going to stop doing this in my personal life because i had not even realized it so far and kept acting out of fomo all this while what i did which i'm proud of and i think it could help others as well is i made a simple rule and formula for myself and a little bit of background i am a person who loves putting my head down on the pillow every night without having regrets i like to be at peace i like to discuss any conflict situations anywhere and sort them out openly talk about them and admit to my faults so sure while i like to do all this some days i'm going to be super happy but some days it's going to be okay but peaceful so what i decided to do to make this happen not only be peaceful and happy as much as i can but also win i said i'm going to set this formula for on a daily basis i need 70% wins on a weekly basis i need 70% wins and on a monthly basis i need these 70% wins there were days when of course you can't get 70% wins in small victories so zooming out and looking at your week and then zooming out and looking at your month and averaging that out and that put me in a space of almost rebuilding my self efficacy my self esteem for myself and getting back to the person i used to be actually in the workspace but the bigger thing for me actually was that i could now and i can now be that person 
in my personal spaces as well. And I finally learned how to say, no, I don't want to join you for this dinner because I just want to be bumming in bed at this point in time. So yeah, that has been a breakthrough challenge and realization. I guess I want to take you back a little bit to go into when you talk about this time that you had, when we use the term imposter syndrome, and I think a lot of us can use that term, you know, there's the element of self-doubt, there's the element of, am I really contributing enough? Am I really producing high quality work? There are lots of thoughts that are going through our heads. What I was interested in was, was it because you stopped? Was it that moment where suddenly you have this time to think? Was it a kind of an introspective thing? Or was it actually you had kind of stood still while other people were still moving? Was it a comparison element as well? What do you think was the real catalyst for you beginning to feel like this? Because at least the way you described it, it sounded like it wasn't necessarily something that was happening before you took the sabbatical. What was creating this narrative in your mind, do you think? Whenever I was at work, I was on top of things and I felt on top of things. So it was the fact that the world around me was moving and I wasn't moving. The first real time that I got to sit back and think without a time pressure, because I did have 12 months dedicated to myself. It was definitely, Shanju, the fact that I had this stillness and I hadn't stopped to think about how I was behaving in the workplace, what was affecting me, but also I hadn't spent so much time thinking about all the bads about work also and all the things that pulled me down. For example, one of the reasons that I said I wanted to build Launch Girls was there was so much gender inequity for me as a woman in power, as I would still call myself. So I had just ignored this and I hadn't actually advocated enough, spoken about it or done anything about it. And I felt shitty about that. I'm like, why am I not speaking up? Why am I not doing something in smaller circles, let alone any big conferences and platforms, right? And I am a person who journals, but it's interesting that you bring up this question that it's probably selective journaling, right? <laughs> That's what I would say. You're choosing what you want to journal about also, right? And this was the first time because I was not at work. I wasn't able to put myself in situations that I was thriving or flourishing just naturally because I just couldn't pick up and be at some office tomorrow or working with some team. And I'm a person who thrives with teams and being in that team environment. And that wasn't happening. And so I was at a loss. What this takes me to is literally the fact that these transition moments in our life, be it as a social entrepreneur, entrepreneur, or just as an employee, are really, really important for us to acknowledge as difficult times. And we need to not only take care of ourselves, but be extremely patient with ourselves and have enough time to actively think about ourselves in these transitions. Those are beautiful moments that are laid out there for us in our life to actually pause and think without any pressure about ourselves and just become better human beings, be it at work or outside. I think so. I think quiet moments can be uncomfortable. I think that's just a fact. And I think also as leaders who are thriving on problem solving, thriving on making that contribution that's going to lead to a change, lead to impact, 
that is what gives us value and self-worth. And I can absolutely imagine for a lot of people, actually, during COVID, that stillness, that quietness, that staying at home, that time to think and really reflect on your own self and your own identity would be quite challenging if you hadn't done that before or you hadn't consciously done that before. And it leads me to think about the people-pleasing element in your personal life of saying yes to things that you didn't want to do. There's peer pressure within your friendship circle. There's also peer pressure within a professional circle and networking. You were saying yes to things that you didn't want to. What was that feeling like for you? Yeah, I think just talking about that is really important because I think we all could do better at really identifying what it is that we're not liking about a situation. And I like that you spoke in those words on you. I was just writing to myself in my journal last night about put yourself in situations that are favorable for you, right? And put yourself around people that are your allies and not those who you need to work against. We're all different people. And while some of us, especially as social entrepreneurs, leaders, have such active, challenging and high intensity professional lives, we tend to drop the ball in our personal lives in terms of decision-making and problem-solving. And I am definitely a person in that category. So I would put in a lot of effort in my personal relationships, but also not think critically. And that's why I just end up saying yes. I'm like, I don't want to sit and have this conversation about why I cannot be here. So I'm not going to sit and calculate it, but might as well show up. But what has that done to me? Got me exhausted made me do something that I don't like or probably believe in at all. And it doesn't actually align with my value system. So for a person like Neha sitting and talking about loving building or culture and writing down values for the organization, what exactly am I doing to my value system in my personal life by not standing up for things that I believe in and don't believe in and not having the gumption to just say no, it's okay. And it gets me to think, why can't I be just as vulnerable and honest with friends and just acquaintances as I can be with my team? I think there's a bit of load balance that we end up doing in between our professional and personal spheres as leaders. I believe it's good to keep on doing that. But what I would emphasize and underscore here is that stay true to what you actually believe in and stand for in every part of your life, right? I don't think it's a proud moment to say that, oh, I'm this one at work, but I'm this other one <laughs> in my personal life. That's nothing to be proud of, really. And I've never been that person who likes to pride myself in differences. And I believe that I'm the same person at work and in this personal space. But aha, this was a big realization. But it went the opposite way of a lot of my actual being outside of work, getting into my work behavior. You were suggesting that actually this feeling of imposter syndrome was leading to that need of external validation. And then that was leading to then this people pleasing. It was like this sort of three part process that was going on for you. You mentioned how you cope in these situations now. There's some different phrases you use. You use terminology about winning. You did this percentage of wins both in your personal and professional life now, how are you navigating this on a day-to-day -day basis so that you can say, when you go to sleep at night, you were saying, you know, want to go to bed, no regrets on today. 
I think I put in place some basic mechanisms. In addition to that, I've also built my ecosystems to allow me to live this life. These mechanisms are pretty straightforward. I have markers and checks for myself that are written on my laptop and my phone. So when I know I'm doing things that I don't want to do, I have checks that tell me I'm doing that. I've written what I don't like, my non-negotiables and negotiables in life. And these are more about values, right? It's not about don't have dinner, don't do this. These are my values and beliefs. That's one check. I put human beings as checkers for me, gatekeepers as well, people who know me really well. And I am a people person and I love trusting my people. So again, I've kept a professional and a personal gatekeeper to kind of tell me, hey, you're not actually listening to yourself. And that's the second mechanism. And third is what I just spoke about. I've created this winning formula and I'm using the word win here just for myself because it works for me, but it's interchangeable with whatever somebody wants to call it. But the idea is that you're putting yourself in situations and around people that align with your being and let you flourish, let you feel good and nurtured and thrive with. So these are three kind of mechanisms that I've built out. Reaching this stage of life, I feel that I've hopefully accumulated enough maturity by now and more wiseness as I build launch girls now with an equally mature co-founder. But what we've done is been very, very intentional in what we're doing in the workplace. We have our non-negotiables and negotiables and we're not budging on those. So we've built an all-women team. Our focus is on culture, quality, and the type of people we recruit. And we just do not negotiate on these. We spend a lot of months building our team culture, documenting it, and we're really proud of it. So that is a work ecosystem that we built. I'm so happy just getting into work for the last two and a half years. There's never been any situation that makes me feel like, why am I doing this? I'm able to be myself, bringing up conflicts. Anyone else is able to be themselves, telling me, hey, Neha, you're out of line, or can I give you some feedback? This is not how it's done. And I love that because that's what I wanted to build. So this is more about what is my workspace and daily ecosystem looking like. And personal ecosystem, I think I've learned it the hard way that FOMO is not good for me. <laughs> but I've also prioritized people, I think, in a very systemic fashion, I've kind of created a hierarchy of people and priorities. I'm going to have levels of interactions and activities and know where to say no, know where to say yes, who I will go out for, who I will prioritize and do things with. This is just to make my ecosystem more feasible. This, along with the mechanisms right now, seems to be working so far. That's so great. I guess I'm going to ask you probably quite a difficult question, which is, what would you say to someone who isn't necessarily in an ecosystem right now that is conducive to helping them through what I think is a very common issue, external validation? I think people can relate to that. How can I make sure that I'm seen, that I'm heard, that I'm being recognized for my work? And then if I'm not, that's possibly also when some imposter syndrome can creep in. If you're not in the right work culture, that can be the root cause of then leading into this unhealthy patterns and behaviors of people pleasing. What might you suggest? What advice might you give to someone who's in that position? 
I think I'm a firm believer in matches, right? Match and fit. And that applies as a rule of thumb to all aspects of my life. For anyone who is in a workplace, that's not a match for them. And when I speak about match and fit, I'm actually not talking about your skill set as much as your cultural match and cultural fitment here be it gendered or non-gendered situations if you feel you're not being heard and that is something that you need for yourself as an individual to flourish in the workplace but that's also your style of being and that's your ecosystem that you want to be in then you're not in the right place right and that's not a match of a place in fact i won't use the word right or wrong here i'll just say it's not a match so you need to figure out another match and a lot of times when people think about these situations you know they think of it as compromise of either a salary or a position i think i've seen this happen with multiple people advise people and seen it for myself if you prioritize the match that's when you're going to put yourself in that winning situation the way i refer to it then you know whether it's money or it's position won't matter it's almost like saying what's the point of just staying afloat on the water and half the time drowning and sinking you need to be swimming you need to be diving that's the analogy i'll use here prioritize that match especially i think the more mature more older we grow that becomes important you want to be happy and relaxed and not anxious and stressed and solving these problems at work i love that and i love that it's kind of gone full circle in terms of what winning can look like to anyone I love that match on values, on thoughts, on identity elements, all come together in terms of just being more satisfied and happier as a leader and in the work that you're doing. Neha, this has been such a great conversation. I'm so grateful that you've come on the podcast and that you've shared a little bit of your soul with us. I think I've had a terrific are talking to you and absolutely love every bit of it including your questions. Oh, thank you. Thank you Neha. Thank you for listening to this episode of Something for the Soul. If you enjoyed it, then I would be so grateful if you could rate it and leave a review. It will help new listeners to find the podcast and build this movement of leaders leaning into vulnerability as a superpower. Remember to press the follow button to get the next episode of Something for the Soul as soon as it's published on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Acast, or whichever platform you're listening on. Bye for now.